If you would open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. This indeed may be the last week where I say that to begin a sermon. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 1. I'll read verses 1 and 2 and then skip forward to our verses for today, verses 39 and 40. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. Now verse 39 and 40. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I'm so grateful to be back. I'm grateful to those who preached for me in my absence, Brother Ray and Brother Nathan, both sermons were great. I listened to them and uh, thankful to everyone who makes sure that our services are available online. It takes actually quite a bit of work. Uh, it's not just pushing a button. So I'm grateful to those who work behind the scenes and with zeal to make sure that those who are not able to be here in person can still participate. And so we come to the conclusion of Hebrews 11. I hope you've enjoyed this. And originally, it was one of my plans, because there are several that happen in the course of preparing a, a schedule of preaching. It was one of my plans to cover these verses in a shorter manner. The plan changed a few times, and I think we decided on a good plan. And I wanted to give others an opportunity to preach. And if you still are burdened or eager to preach and to hone that skill, please let me know. That's one thing that I believe revival in the church hinges on is the raising up of bold proclaimers of the word of God and giving ample opportunity for us to fan into flame that gifting. And I think next summer will be the time, uh, late summer, early fall, where we'll have a similar series, maybe treating a whole book, uh, sharing through that ex uh, exposition. So now let's talk about these last two verses. There's a danger with these two verses of just flying over them. There are states that are called flyover states. You don't necessarily vacation to them. You just go from one place to another and skip over them. And I believe that these two verses have the chance or run the risk of being flyover verses where we don't pay attention, slow down. At best, we can just leave this passage with a question of, huh, and then just move on to more familiar passages. The last summary passage, uh, Nathan, Brother Nathan summarizes verses uh, 32 through 38. Powerful message calling us to consider the cost of following Christ. Kind of summarizes the whole story of God's people through the Old Testament and even up until now. And the beginning verses of chapter 12 are perhaps some of the most famous verses in all the Bible. 
And so we can rush from what is just an amazing summary passage over these two verses to another set of amazing passages. But when you read your Bible, my encouragement to you is to not pass over little words and little sentences. They open up to you new worlds through secret doors. This is such a passage, these two verses. And I could go and show you many more as examples, but that would take too much of our time. The point here is that we need to read our Bibles very carefully, repeatedly, and think very hard about each and every word. You need to ask yourself this question. If you believe what Paul says in his letter to Timothy, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable so that the man of God would be equipped for every good work, then all of the Bible, every word, is for you. It's not just for the church in general. It's for you. And every word is, an, is important for you to do what God is wanting from your life. And if you miss out on key pieces, then your life will be fractured in its ability to bring the glory to God that He deserves. Read it repeatedly. Read it carefully. Do you read your Bible with the thought in mind that the Holy Spirit himself ensured that someone would write this and that men and women would be zealous enough to give their lives so that you would have it in your own language? Every word was brought to you by the blood of faithful men and women, some of those that we heard about. And you can ask that of every passage, but especially the ones that we're not familiar with. What if every scripture, every passage, had so much significance for you as maybe John 3.16 or Romans 8.28? Or Matthew 28, 18. What if, what if God speaking to you through the words of the Bible had that much power, had that much force on your life? And you don't need to imagine because they do. Every passage, some shorter, some longer, offer us some insight into the very person of God himself. And that's why they're so valuable. They may not give you a five-step plan to fix your marriage. They may not give you a mission strategy to build from the ground up, but they will show you who God is. They will open up, as it were, a window to see Him from a different angle, a different perspective. And even if every passage does that just a little bit, maybe less in some cases, maybe more in others, then they're still infinitely valuable because they give you a view into the heart of an infinitely valuable person, God himself. It's as if we are in a building near a majestic mountain that's just so huge. It's, it, it, it extends so far out of sight. And as we move around in this building, we, we encounter windows 
so that we can see this mountain. And, and in one window, there's a tree that blocks it. And if you go up a, a higher one, you can see a different angle. And we're just moving around trying to see through these windows. And some windows are bigger, some windows are smaller, but that doesn't change the size of this mountain that we want to see. This passage, the more that I've studied it, these two verses, the more I've soaked in it and let it alter my thinking, is a very big window. So, I've set the expectation very high, intentionally. I want you to pay attention, turn your brains on. You're going to need to think. This message has four parts. First, we'll explore a little bit of the context of these two verses and talk a little bit about what our expectations might have been coming to this place, the conclusion of this chapter. Next, we'll talk about the wording, the exact translation, how, how we should feel about each of the different words. And then we'll talk about what it meant in this chapter for the original readers. And then we'll talk about what it means for us today. So let's begin. Some needs to be said as we discuss context and setting the stage by way of reminder of why Hebrews 11 exists. It has been called the Hall of Faith, and that's fine as far as it goes for a title. But that title doesn't help us that much in understanding why this chapter is here. It's not just like the Hall of Fame of, of the professional football in Canton, Ohio. Right? It's just there to commemorate all those who are really good at the game. It's not like the author of Hebrews breaks from his purpose and just decides... Here, I'll go through and chronicle all the really awesome saints. And then resumes his argument afterwards. That's not what he's doing. If I were to title it, I would say something like this. Reinterpreting the history of Israel. Or how to read your Old Testament. Or it was always and only by faith. The common understanding of the relationship between the two covenants is that God gives the law. The law failed to produce the kind of obedience that God wanted. So he comes up with a new plan. And Jesus, even if that was the plan from before all time, it's like the law comes, it fails. Now it sets the stage for Jesus. Jesus comes and he puts into place this new program called faith in place of the law. And Hebrews 12 corrects that understanding, not by saying obedience is unimportant. Rather, it says the law, or saying that the law is still intact. Rather, he says that it was never through the law or adherence to the sacrifices alone. It was always by faith. And as James is quick to point out, if, it doesn't, if faith does not lead to obedience, then that's not faith at all. That faith can't save you if it is a faith that doesn't produce obedience in your life. However, faith comes first. That's the point of Hebrews 11. It was always by faith. It's never been by any other way. And faith comes before obedience. And faith must still fill our hearts in obedience or nothing we are and nothing we do is pleasing to God. Think of Cain and Abel. This is one of the stories mentioned 
They're both offering sacrifices. They're both seeking to live a holy life, as it were. But the author of Hebrews says that Abel's sacrifice was accepted because he offered it in faith. It's not because Cain offered grain. It's because he didn't offer it in faith. And that's the point of this passage. You can do anything that is praiseworthy in this life. You can give your body to be burned, as it were. But if it's not in faith, it's not pleasing to the Lord. And it's sin. So, that being the point of this chapter, understand why the author is saying this here. It's not an interlude, these two verses that we're studying today. It is the crowning argument to support his main exhortation through the whole book. And that is, hold fast to Christ in faith. You must hold fast to Christ. Consider Jesus, the high priest of our confession Hold fast to him. Do not neglect the salvation. That's been his exhortation the entire time. And this is the crowning argument in that long line of exhortation. It's not a new way. And you are not leaving the heritage of God's people by following Christ. That's his encouragement to his first hearers. You're not, you're not abandoning the heritage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and all these people by doing this new thing with Jesus. It's always been by faith. And if you would want to follow in line with their heritage, then you must hold fast to Christ in faith. There's no other way. No longer doing all the sacrifices, keeping the festivals, and living in the exact cultural way explained in Torah. Rather, it is only those who trust in Christ, entrusting themselves to Him, who carry on the legacy of God's people. So there's an encouragement in this. Don't lose heart because the Jewish people at this time were persecuting Christians. They were being kicked out of synagogues, disowned by their families, uh, losing certain special protections that the Jewish people had within the Roman Empire. Do you know that the Jews were the only people that didn't have to offer incense to Caesar because they knew that they, the, the Jews would freak out and revolt? So they had a special exception, but when you became a Christian, that no longer applied. So you came under the death penalty for being a consistent Christian from Rome. So don't lose heart, he's saying to his people, to these, this church that he loves so much. Don't lose heart. This is the heritage of the people of God from the beginning. So these verses are not so much just a walk down memory lane, as it were, but they rather show that all of the Old Testament, including the promises, do not belong to the Jews on the basis of biological descent from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But rather, the story of the Old Testament belongs to those who have faith in Jesus, both Jew and Gentile. That's the point. And with that said, let's look at our two verses today, and see them as what they are, the conclusion of this argument. I'm just going to read them again. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. 
since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Is that what you would expect? If you were reading this chapter for the first time, I would wager that that wording, that sentence is not what you would expect to find. I would expect kind of a restatement of uh, verse 1 and 2, or, or, or maybe verse 6. Look, look at verse 6. If I were reading chapter 11 for the first time, and I, would, I would expect something like verse 6 to happen again. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I would just expect him to say that again or something like that again. So you see that faith in Christ is essential. Something like that. But instead, we get a rewording of verse 13. Look at verse 13. And all these, or these all, died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. But that's not all. He's not just restating verse 13. He's doing something else. What else do we find? There's this little word that makes this passage unique. Verse 40, since God had provided something better for us. Something better for us. Even if you had memorized the entire chapter, I would wager that you would not put that word there. Other than the offhand reference to we back in verse 1, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. This is the first mention about us in the whole chapter. We might expect something like this. For God had provided something better for them. That's what verse 13 is saying. So he's doing something completely different. Something unanticipated. Something not expected. God withheld the promise from them because he had provided something better for us. That's what this verse is saying. And I'm sorry, you've got to use your brain this morning. I know it's early-ish. But this is key, and it is so huge, and it helps you put your Bible together. Immediately, the author reminds us that he's not so much talking to us about the history of Israel and all these interesting characters. Rather, he is talking about us. And he's explaining what God is doing For us. And that is not what we would expect, I don't think. So let's look at the wording. The exact wording, what it says. Verse 39. A few things need to be addressed so that we can uh, talk about some of what's really going on in these verses. And and, And hopefully you will see what he's saying and how different it is than what we might expect. The ESV renders it, as I've said before, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. And I think that is probably one of the best of the uh, popular translations. I looked at several. It shows that there's tension at work. Even though God commended them through their faith, yet they did not receive what was promised. That's what he's saying. 
If I were to word it literally, here's, here's how it would read. And all these, having been affirmed through faith, did not take possession of the promise. So, a few questions about this. Who is the all? Who is the all here? It's important that we realize this is not just talking about those mentioned by name in this chapter. It literally means anyone who is commended at all for anything good in all of the Old Testament. Any of the good guys. At all. Because if you received commendation, according to verse 1, it's because you had faith. So anyone who was in any way, in any measure, in any degree, faithful to the Lord, that's who this is referring to. That is who the all means. These all. You don't have to make it, this is the point, you don't have to make it to the hall of faith in order for Hebrews 11 to be about you. And the summary of verses 32 through 38, make that clear. It's anyone, whether through victory or defeat, trusted in the Lord. It's anyone who at any time received any commendation, any praiseworthiness from God for their faith or for anything good that they did ever. These all refer to the entire heritage of faith. All the true people of God in the Old Testament. The remnant, as it were. Even as God says to Elijah, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Those 7,000, Hebrews 11 is talking about them too. All of them. The very highly esteemed, like Samuel and Daniel. And the shocking, the scandalous. Like David, like Abraham. One last exhortation on this point of who the all means. It's very easy to think disparagingly of God's trophies of grace. Because their sin in our eyes is greater than our sin. And when you think disparagingly towards God's grace towards them of including such a one in the hall of faith, then you cut the branch out from under yourself because the very grace at work in their lives from God to forgive them is the only grace at work to forgive you. And it is only through faith that God will justify sinners. You don't have a leg to stand on unless God justifies the ungodly through faith in Christ. So, next question. What does the commending or or, or affirmed mean? The ESV renders it, uh, though commended through their faith. Uh, This is the same word for witness, from where we get the word martyr. And and back then, uh, a witness or martyr was just someone who would stand and give their testimony in a court of law. And, and testify to something. And it came to mean one who would give their lives as the testimony. But here it just means witness. It, it is uh, one who stands and gives t- verbal testimony about someone else or something else. Here, it is not 
all those mentioned in these all who are giving their witness. So the question is, who is the witness? Who's giving witness? It's not the all. All these, though, commended through their faith. They're not giving witness through their faith. They are being witnessed about because of their faith. Someone else is bearing witness to them. Someone else is standing in the dock, as it were, in a legal courtroom to contend the case for these people, standing up and bearing witness for them. So who is doing the commending or the affirming? It's not explicit in the text, at least not in this verse, and it doesn't need to be. It is assumed on the author's point that we would assume and infer that God is the one who is doing the affirming the one who is commending, the one who is standing up, as it were, and bearing witness about these people. The imagery, if you can imagine such a thing, God standing in the court of public opinion, angels, all the hosts of heaven, and all the inhabitants of the earth, all the people for all ages, and all those from the pages of Scripture, saying about these people, They trusted me. That's the imagery here. These people received commendation for their faith from God. He is standing up and bearing witness on their behalf. They trusted me. This one trusts me. She trusts me. He trusts me. Is God able to say that for you? Set aside for a minute if you prayed a prayer a long time ago thinking that you could cause your own rebirth by mere words. Do you trust the Lord Jesus with everything? Do you trust Him even if it costs you dearly? Because it very well might. And every day we have to put to death the deeds of the flesh. So if you're not feeling some sense of the cost of discipleship now, you're probably not trying to follow him. Can God say that of you, that you trust him unequivocally? This is a serious question and it is the challenge of the whole chapter. Is this your heritage? Are these the ones that you look to and follow their example of trusting the Lord? Are you of those who shrink back? Chapter 10. And are destroyed. But if you do trust the Lord. Oh brother and sister. Do you understand how rock solid and secure your eternal future is? If you trust him. If you only trust him, who in the court of public opinion can stand and dispute God himself as he stands and says of you, he trusts me, she trusts me, no one can. 
You will stand at your side, even in the courtroom of heaven, the judgment seat of Christ itself, the Lord of all, the I am, Lord Sabaoth, the Almighty, the Ancient of Days, stands before no one other than himself, because no one else's opinion matters in that moment, and says, this one trusts in me. Rejoice. In the eternal security promised to you through faith in Christ. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Do you trust him? Next question. Did they really not receive the promise? As if to give us a plot twist that puts all the great plot twists of Hollywood to shame. The author is saying like the ESV renders it, even though God himself stands at their side and says, yes, this one trusts me, he trusts me, she trusts me, I can vouch for this one because they trusted me in their life, even though God commends them for their faith, yet they did not receive the promise. That's the plot twist. I want you to feel the tension. That is not what we would expect. Most translations render this the things promise, but the wording in the original is just the promise. Because if you go without receiving the very best parts of the things that are promised to you, it's as if you don't have the promise at all. If you don't receive them in your lifetime, then it's valid to question is the, promise, is the promise valid at all? Did God really mean it when he promised all these things? This is the closest thing that we will ever or can ever see to God breaking a promise. It's not him breaking a promise, but this is the closest thing you'll ever see that's like it. Because these people did not receive the things promised. And that calls into question the justice of God. And we've got to deal with that. And that's what the author, the burden that the author feels that he's exhorting these people for. Like, look, consider them. They received great promise and they died without receiving it. This is exactly what's going to happen to you. That's what he's saying. This may make us feel uncomfortable. And yet, that is the author's point. If there is not something else coming, even something better, as he says here, then God himself could be charged with breaking his promise. Because otherwise, God would be breaking his own word. In Proverbs 3, uh, Solomon says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. When it is in your power to do it. Is God breaking his own exhortation to do good when you can? Is he just holding the promises off for these people? Like, I know it would be good for you, but I'm just going to hold it off because I want you to suffer in life. I'm going to be stingy as your heavenly father as we're so off to think that he is. I'm just going to hold it off, keep it to myself. I have the power to give it all and to bless everyone as much as they could possibly imagine now. But I'm just going to hold it off because of some kind of plan I have going on. Is that what he's doing? Even as Psalm 
84 says, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. But is he here withholding it? The Bible says he doesn't withhold anything good. And here it says the promises are being withheld. They're not being given. The answer is not, well, God can do whatever he wants. And it is not, well, no one is really upright and no one really deserves the promise. uh, So God uh, doesn't really have to do anything. He can bless or not bless. It's all up to him. He's sovereign. He's in charge. He can do whatever he wants. That's not the answer. Because God has obligated himself through the promises to act in certain ways towards people. This is something that he has willingly and freely done to obligate himself to bless his people. So it must mean, even as the next verse says, that God had something better at work. He's not just withholding good things from his saints because he's God and he can do whatever he wants. He is doing so because it is better for them that he would do so. Part of faith is resting in the fact that when God makes a promise, he will keep it. It's almost foundational to what the meaning of faith is, that you trust that when God promises something, it is as sure as if it is happening now. And because these men and women related to us in chapter 11 trusted God and knew that God cannot break a promise, that even death and even thousands of years after death or tens of thousands of years after death, cannot stand in the way of God fulfilling every single thing that He has promised to those who trust Him. Just as Abraham knew that even if he had to go through with slaying his son Isaac there on the altar, that God would raise him up. Because God had promised that through Isaac, He would be the father of many nations. Can you imitate this kind of faith? Are you so assured of God's trustworthiness to keep His promises? Are they so grounded in your heart that you're able to face all kinds of trials with assurance and steadfastness? That's what it means to be a person of faith. Not that it's easy. And even many of the people that we discussed show that faith is a struggle It's difficult. But at the end of the day, at the very bottom of their soul, they knew God cannot lie. He has promised good to me. His word, my hope, secures. Is that you? Is that at the very bottom for you? The very you of you. If someone were to Go all the way in and look at what is at the very bottom. Is it, I trust the Lord Jesus Christ to keep his word, to do what he has said. This is what enables Lady Wisdom to look into the future and just laugh. Do you know, O calamity, 
what good things God has promised to me? Do you have any idea, O death, what God has determined to do for me? Do you know, O Satan and you children of the devil, what God will do for those who trust him? The Lord is at my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's the heart of faith. And I know that is a hard sell in a year like this with suffering. But that must be our core. And you must nurture that kind of faith. There are things that you can do to water and nourish and fertilize that kind of faith in your heart to send its roots deep into the Word of God. And now we look at verse 40. And it raises the stakes even higher. So... What are these better things? God is holding off the promise to all of these saints that he has promised amazing things to. He is holding it off, not giving them the promise because there's something better. So let's talk about what this something better is. And how is it that God will give these better things to them? DSV, I've read it now a few times, but let's read it again. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This is a little more tricky, but if I were to word it literally, this is what it would say. It's very clunky, and this is why most translations word it a little bit differently. But here's, here's how it would be literally. God having provided in advance something better concerning us, so that... Not apart from us will they be brought to perfection. It's a difficult sentence. Let me read it again. God, having provided in advance something better concerning us, that not apart from us will they be brought to perfection. I like that wording better than how most translations word it because it says... Uh, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. The emphasis is that they will be made perfect, just not apart from us. And the verse ends in the original with being made perfect. So I wanted to word it that way. So that not apart from us will they be brought to perfection. So a few questions about this. What was provided? It just says in this text that it's it's something better. It's better things. In Hebrews, the word better that's that's used here uh, is used very often. So we should follow the flow of the thought of the author of Hebrews. The word better, the the specific uh, root that's used here in Hebrews 11, is used 12 times in Hebrews. And in the rest of the New Testament, it's only used five times. So this theme of better things or something being better than another is a huge theme for the author of Hebrews. So this theme of comparison is is part of the point. And following the logic of the author, I I don't have time to go and recount it all and summarize all of Hebrews again for you. But the idea is roughly this. This better thing, this something better that God provided is the totality of what Christ came to do. The totality of what Christ came to do. Not just the person of Christ, 
But the better new covenant that he came to inaugurate, the better priesthood, the better ministry that he performs, his better sacrifice, the better words that his blood speaks than the blood of Abel, chapter 12. It's everything that he's doing. His person, his work, his ministry, his death, burial, resurrection, all of it is better. And it is the better thing referred to in in verse 40. Second question, how did God provide it? It says here, God had provided, and, and the flavor of the word is that he provided it in advance with foresight. He provided it in advance. How did he do it? The providing is done by God in advance of the better things themselves. So he's providing all the better things that come in Christ before Christ comes. That's what he's saying. So we see, this is important, that God making the plan to do it, God deciding that Jesus would come, deciding that all these better things would come in him, even before it happened, was as sure as if it had already happened. This is why in the revelation to John, it is said that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. Before creation, it was a sure thing that Jesus would come and bring all these better things. But who is he preparing these better things for? As I said earlier, we would expect to have him say them here. But he doesn't say that. He says us. He's providing better things for us. So who is the us? It's a weird sentence. Who is the us? The us here, as we talked about earlier, resumes the overall thought of the letter. The group of believers in Jesus who are weary from the world and under trial because they trust in Jesus. It's those who have come into the new covenant with the better promises. In short, this means those who don't just trust God in some general sense, the Lord or Yahweh, but those who place their faith in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That is the us here. And understand, this is why God did not give them all of the people mentioned in Hebrews 11 and all the remnant throughout all ages prior to the coming of Christ, this is why God did not give them the things promised that he had promised to them because he prepared in advance something better. Namely, as one of the reformers said, Jesus Christ clothed in his gospel. And he did it for us. Is this what you often think when you think of promise keeping? Someone makes a promise to you and they don't follow through on it. They don't give you the thing that was promised. They don't do the thing that they promised, but they do it for someone else. Is that the way you think of promise keeping? But that's what the author is saying God has done. He has made a promise to all these people. He's not given it to them, but provided something better for us. That's why this is a startling verse and why it opens to us God's greater purposes that work throughout all of redemptive history. 
So let's ask another question. Why, why is God doing this? Why is God holding off the fulfillment of the promise and instead doing something better for us? Better than what? Better than what is the question. It says better things. What is the comparison here? So we understand that the better things are Christ, but what are the things of Christ better than? They're better than the fulfillment of all the promises in their lifetime. What if Abraham had received all the land that was promised to him? What if he were not a sojourner for the duration of his life? What if he were, in some sense, crowned king or or patriarch over all the land of promise? That wouldn't be better. And that's the point that the author is saying. And that's, that's startling, especially when we begin to apply it to our lives. That it's better for God to withhold the fulfillment of certain promises for you because he's got something better in view? That God's uncomfortable. But that's the God who is there. The Lord has promised good to us, and even as Mary sings in her magnificent, He fills the hungry with good things. But many go hungry. He exalts the downtrodden, but many are still downtrodden. And the answer of the author of Hebrews is he's withholding the fulfillment of those promises because he has something better. Next question, apart from who? It's the us again, apart from us. In short, those who are under the high priestly ministry of Jesus, which bears repeating that Jesus was appointed, inaugurated as high priest, At the moment of his resurrection, by an indestructible life, the author of Hebrews says, when he showed that he was the one with an indestructible life, that's when God announces, this is my high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Sorry, I don't have time to unpack that whole thing. But that's the point. And so before Jesus is inaugurated as the high priest of the new covenant, no one is under his high priestly ministry because he's not the high priest. It hasn't happened yet. That's a big thing because all the promises of God have collapsed into the person of Jesus. So until Jesus comes, you can't have any of the promises in their fullness. Do you believe that? This is an important question. To whom belong the promises? Who does it belong to? Does it belong to the biological descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Does it belong to the church now? Paul says, all the promises of God are yes in Christ. Jesus has all the promises. He is the son of David. He is the offspring of Abraham. He is the suffering servant. He is the pure Israel. He is the temple. He is the son of David. He is the son of man. All the promises are his by right because he showed up and earned them by his life and death and burial and resurrection. So Jesus owns the promises and gives them to those who trust him. Whether you're a biological descendant of Abraham or not. Whether you're wealthy or not. Whether you're strong or weak. 
whether you have a theology degree or not, all the promises are yours in Christ. Last question of verse 40 before we talk about what this means for us today. What does he mean by perfect? I think this word can make us feel awkward. One day, all the people of God will be made perfect. You will not forever be beset by sin. You will not forever be weak. You will not forever be confused. You will not forever be in darkness or stumbling about or having all these false starts and failures. One day, you will, in Christ, be made perfect. But this doesn't just mean holiness. We talked about this 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 morning in Sunday school. It's not just talking about moral purity. Because the angels who did not fall, as Peter calls them, the elect angels, are holy. But they're not perfect in the sense that the saints of God will be made perfect. There's something special. There is a unique perfection for you and me as we are united to Christ. And indeed, the angel's perfection is mysteriously tied up with our own, but that's another sermon. Perfection here means more than holiness. It means being the full recipient of all of God's goodness embedded in his promises. That's what it has to mean in the context of the promise. Meaning that they will receive all that has been promised, but not apart from us. God will be faithful. He will bring to fruition everything that he has promised to everyone who trusts him. It is not as though faith failed. If you were just reading this through and not asking a lot of questions, it would look like faith failed because they didn't receive what was promised. And it's not even that the people failed or that God failed, of course, to bring about the promises. It is that it was never going to be any other way for the promises of God to come to anyone except in Jesus Christ alone. So what does this mean for us today? Number one, God is fully committed to bless all his people together and fully in the person of his son, Jesus, and his eternal reign. Go back to Hebrews chapter two, verse five. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. All the promises of God are yes in Christ. And even though right now we don't see everything yet submitted to him, 
When you look out at the world and the craziness that comes across in the headlines, maybe just take a hiatus from all of that for a bit. I think we're overrun. But when we see it, do we, do we think, ah, oh, this is the reign of Christ. This is his dominion. Everything is submitted to him. No. But it has been. He by right is king of the world. And not just the world. All authority has been given to him. So just stand in awe, I think. This is the first kind of application. Just stand in awe of God's commitment to make Christ central in all things. He even holds off the fulfillment of the promises he made to people like Abraham, Moses, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. He held off giving them what was promised, waiting for the coming of Christ. Because not except through Christ will they receive everything that was promised. That is how committed God is to making Christ central and preeminent in all things, as Paul says in Colossians 1, that he might be preeminent in all things. That is God's plan. Number two, as an application for us today, C.S. Lewis says that we are far too easily pleased. It's not that we're seeking pleasure. That's not the problem. The problem is that we are too easily pleased. What are you praying for? What are your hopes in this life? What are the blessings you pray for? Might I wager that if they are blessings that can only happen in this life or that can fit within your lifetime, then you're not praying big enough and you are too easily pleased. Your prayers should be so big and so expansive that it should take eternity to fulfill them. When you read the prayers of Jesus in John 17, that's the size of prayers that we should be praying. When we pray for healing, pray for sanctification through the trial. When we pray for our nation, pray for holiness for the church as we endure suffering. When we seek the good of others, pray that they would know the Lord so that they would be saved and come to an eternal knowledge of Him, to be with Him and us forever. Pray big prayers. Hope massive things. Don't be too easily pleased. This is God's all-expansive plan to fulfill all His promises in the person of Jesus. And sometimes we're just like the older brother. You never gave me a goat. And the father would rebuke us just as the same he said. And he says, all all that is mine is yours. Why are you asking for a goat? Number three, reevaluate the way you see the Bible and the work of God. It's easy to see the Bible in what I would call a very typical way. It's just these cycles of failures, pushing God to the final solution of Christ. Creation, that didn't work. Start over with a new family. In Noah, that didn't work. Call Abraham, Israel, that didn't work. Babylonian captivity kind of ended that plan. So I guess I'll send my son. And now we're into a new program that will last to the end. That's not what was happening. They were building blocks. 
They were getting ready for the eternal home. And they were preparing for the people of God, cascading tsunamis of God's blessing and fulfillment of all His promises on you. Because without us, not even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be made perfect. Further, just as an aside to those who know your Bible well, reevaluate certain passages of Scripture like Romans 11, the olive tree. In Galatians 3, Paul says that the Gentiles have come in so that we would receive the promised Holy Spirit. It was never going to be the plan for salvation for Israel except with the inclusion of the Gentiles. That is the mystery Paul talks about. Number four, stand in awe. For nothing can stand or has stood in the way of God fulfilling his promises to those who trust him. It may not look like it. Because without an eternal perspective, just as Paul says, we are being killed all the day long, as Brother Nathan drew out. More Christians are being killed now than ever. So what of it? Is God failing in his promises to defend his people? If you don't have an eternal perspective, your answer has to be yes. But the Lord will vindicate the righteous. He will return and bring life to the dead. And he will judge the living and the dead. And all those who trusted him will be vindicated. Christ will come and he will make all things new. And so we shall forever be with the Lord. Number five, re-enchant your world and really live like you believe the promises of God. What form, what forms the, the very foundation of your life's plan? Is it, is it a desire for a certain kind of retirement? Is it a desire to uh, have a certain type of uh, peace and serenity or a certain type of house? Is it a, a degree of wealth in your 401k? Is it to visit far off lands? What forms the very foundations of your life motivations? You can re enchant your world and see your life through the lens of God's promises. And not what the carnal church tells you are God's promises, but the real promises of God in this book. I mentioned this in Sunday school, so for those who are there, I apologize for the repeat, but especially for you young people, you could sweep us all away. You could be amazing if you today decided that the promises of God will determine your life. 
If today were the day where you said, every decision I'm going to make where I go to school, how I do my school, who I look for in a spouse, what I do after I'm done with school, where I work, or maybe if I do any of those things at all is going to be decided based on the promises of God. Then revival would be around the corner. And you would blow us all away. Even if you are six or five years old, if you decide that today, no one will stand against you because God himself will stand at your side. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking one through whom he will show himself strong. And that can be you today. Next. Will your name be found here? Another title we could give to Hebrews 11 is, Is this your heritage? Is this your heritage? Chapter 11 is the heritage of faith, as it were. And as I said earlier, it does not matter so much who your mom or dad is, if you are a biological descendant of Abraham or not, if you have a seminary degree or not, if you're smart or not, if your life is filled with success or not, or even if God spoke to you or not. And it doesn't matter if he has made direct promises to you or not. It all depends on faith. Do you trust the Lord Jesus with everything or not? And if you do, then your name is right there with Noah, Moses, David, Samuel, and even Christ himself. And this is the point. We wait just like them. Does it feel like God has fulfilled all his promises to you right now, today? If your answer is yes, then, brother and sister, you are too easily pleased. There are promises in this book that make us blush. If you are not waiting and eagerly anticipating the coming of the Lord on the great and awesome day, because you believe God that He will fulfill all His promises to you, I don't know how you wake up in the morning. This world is reeking of sin and rebellion and there is weakness and brokenness in our own lives. And even as we sin against the Lord and are grieved because of the sin, it's just on repeat. And if there is no over the sun, then all of it is just vanity. Is that the Christianity you signed up for? It better be, because that's the only heritage of faith. That, it, that is what it means to trust in the Lord. Confidence that God will raise you from the dead is not rooted in flexing your heart and mind, just believing that it's going to happen. It's knowing that it must, because God has made promises to me that haven't yet been fulfilled. So even if I die, and even if it is 10,000 years after I die, God must raise me from the dead because He is trustworthy and He will keep every one of His promises to those who trust Him. That's the confidence of a Christian. 
God is trustworthy. And he has brought these better things. Even as we have a foretaste of the coming of these better things, we don't have it all yet. It is trusting that Jesus will keep all of his promises to his own. Oh, for grace to trust him more. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing these better things to us. Help us be just simply staggered by your wisdom at work to even postpone the fulfillment of the promises, even through death, for those who came before, because of your desire to make Christ preeminent. May we repent of manners of living that do not make Christ preeminent. Help us see that that is equivalent to opposing you and opposing your plan for this universe and opposing your holiness and your person. Help us read our Bibles well and sink our, de- our roots deeply into the very words of it, even the little words and the little sentences, and help it reframe our thinking so that we can know you. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, and his first coming as a promise and as a foretelling of his final return one day. Give us the faith we need to endure to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.